This is an ABC podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, after a journey of 45,000 kilometres, the Olympic flame is entering the stadium. The winner is Cindy. This was the most extraordinary bidding process in the history of the modern Olympics. Dear athletes, you have written a new chapter of Olympic history that began in ancient Olympia 3,000 years ago. The Olympic Games. It's the pinnacle achievement for many athletes. So every year, new sports try to be recognized. And the latest push comes from eSports. eSports is our topic today on Future Tense. Hello, I'm Karin Zivanovic. Now, whether the attempt for eSports to join the Olympics has a chance of success, you'll hear a bit later in the program. Here he comes. He's in stealth. There's the alert. They know he's there. They don't know who he's on. He We are really talking about competitive video gaming. Individual players or teams battle it out against each other and the clock. In an online setting or live on stage, cheered on by tens of thousands of fans. It is absolutely a cross between a live sport and a rock concert. I would definitely encourage anyone to attend before forming any sort of opinion about it. It absolutely altered mine. I thought, well, how engaging could this be? Watching people play video games, getting excited enough to cheer them as you would in traditional sports barracking for your team. But there's a lot of technology. There's often a really engaging light show involved, for instance, fantastic music. People are dancing, people are cheering. So this is the sort of level of entertainment, a packed stadium and really high quality graphics in the games, you know, great cinematography where you're actually quite enraptured by this game. The uncertainty, you don't know what will happen next, is quite gripping. My name is Sarah Kelly. I'm an associate professor in sports law and sports marketing at the University of Queensland. And I'm also a director and founder of the Global Esports Institute. We've seen the main growth occurring initially all through Asia, particularly in China and Korea, and very much so in North America. There's evidence now to show it is now the most popular content among millennials and Gen Z being under 18s. I think at the moment it's hitting about $1.5 billion, the industry globally. The level of sponsorship from non-endemic sponsors being sponsors who aren't actually tied to esports equipment, big commercial sponsors are now coming across and investing very heavily in esports. Brands like Red Bull, some of the beer companies as well, Coca-Cola, Snickers, KFC. Do esports actually draw away sponsors from traditional sports now? At the moment, I think the commercial frontier in esports is very much an experimental frontier where sponsors are still getting more insight and understanding and, and metrics around their return on investment. 
However, we have seen some evidence of sponsorship dollars in traditional sports being diverted to esports. One example is McDonald's recently completed their long-standing Olympic sponsorship and have gone across to invest very heavily in esports. So what makes esports so appealing to these big brands? The growth of esports is astronomical. It's an extraordinary industry just as a business proposition when you see the impacts of it even seen in the share market in some of the companies' valuations such as Amazon, which recently acquired Twitch, which is the main online streaming platform of esports. It owns about 90% of the eyeballs in the world for esports. Amazon shares rising as a result of that acquisition. Tencent in China, which is almost a fully vertically integrated company concerned with all aspects of esports, one of the highest valued shares on the Chinese stock exchange. So we're seeing real value translated into the bottom line in business through investment in esports. But one of the main reason companies and even traditional sports looking at diversifying into esports are doing just that is to reach the next target segments, being the millennials and the under-18s. You know, it is the most popular content. It's more popular than traditional live sports among those generations. It's more popular than cinema. It's more popular than rock concerts. Oh, my God! What an enormous round for Dennis You know, so whenever there's a a large headline tournament being offered, they will fill, you know, a 100,000-seat capacity stadium, particularly in North America and Asia. The audience numbers on recent estimates, Twitch figures in particular and tournament figures, attendance figures, my understanding was something like half a billion are currently watching it with that projected growth of 30% year on year. So extraordinary growth as an industry. You mentioned traditional sports plunging into esports as mm. well. What are some examples or what kind of esports do they offer? Right. Well, we're seeing this trend across the world of traditional sports now investing quite heavily into esports. The path has been led largely by the NBA and the NFL. In Australia, we've seen the AFL recently partner with Riot, one of the biggest and most popular publishers. They famously own League of Legends. Some of the clubs in sports as well, so a couple of the AFL clubs have invested in their own teams who they train and house in-house in a traditional AFL environment, which is very interesting to see. The A-League is also doing this in Australia. Where the synergy is, is firstly that they're able to ensure their traditional sports brand is resonating with the younger consumer population and they are consuming and going to consume live sports very differently and participate in live sports differently. But they need to ensure their traditional sporting brand is resonating with that market through the esports vehicle. Advanced technology is behind the skyrocketing of esports, faster internet, new online streaming services, more sophisticated games. The gamers are clearly professionals these days. It takes up to two years to master a top game and to compete shoulder to shoulder with the world's best. Darren Quorn is the president of the Australian Esports Association. And of course, he's a gamer himself. You know, the attraction is all the adrenaline and excitement and fun, the social side of it, forming teams and entering tournaments and playing in front of crowds and, and so on. That's really the appeal. Then there's the added benefits of 
proving you're the best and winning prizes or, or travel opportunities to go to world tournaments and all that glitz and glamour. So what are the main game categories and which games are the biggest draw cards at the moment? I like to think of it kind of like music where you've got rock music, you've got pop music and, and electro and so on. It's the same in gaming. So categories like person shooters exist where you take the role of a character and you're often using some kind of projectile weapon to complete objectives. Some of the big ones we've heard about are Fortnite. A subset of that is what they call a battle royale, which is where it's kind of like the Hunger Games, the last man standing wins. Then you have other games like massive online battle arenas. The world's largest esports tournament is one of those, which is Dota 2. The tournament's called the International, and it's much more strategic. It's about two teams taking on each other to capture each other's base. And then you have other games like racing simulators and sports strategy games and so on. So there's quite a variety of categories. Esports are big business, without a doubt. What kind of prize money are we talking here about? And where does the money come from? Prize money varies from game to game. And I guess that reflects the popularity of each game as well and the willing investors in, in each space. So the largest prize pool in the world is the 25 million US event for Dota 2. And that's largely backed by the community, so the players themselves, where the game publisher commits a baseline prize pool, I think, of, of $2 million. And then the rest is made up by people purchasing merchandise. They have over 100 million players around the world. You can imagine how quick that can fuel the rise of a prize pool. Say what we do with our university league. We pull together a number of sponsors who are interested in supporting the activity and, and want to reach out to the fan base and the audience. And we take an amount out of that and put a prize pool up uh, privately. So in our university league, we put $15,000 per year up. You kind of get two vehicles, one driven by the game publishers, two driven by stakeholders in the space. I understand that children are very much into it as well. Yes, that's correct. I mean, walk around a shopping center and see how many children have an iPad or a mobile phone, and they're all interacting with some kind of video game. And essentially, that's where it begins. Isn't there a problem, though, when children are already very much into sometimes maybe obsessed with a video game and what is essentially a shooting game? There's two ways to look at it. One, there is a subset of people who are always going to get obsessed with things. It's nothing we haven't seen before. You know, the rise of television, there were people who just wanted to sit and watch TV all the time. They didn't want to study. They didn't want to do anything else. And they would do that with all kinds of other, other hobby activities and take it to the extreme. And we see that the same in esports. But you know, the science is there and it's saying that it's, it's a real small subset. It could be under 1% of the total player population is impacted by this, which is the same in any activity. And look, with the shooting games, video game designers, they make all kinds of games from farming simulators to uh, you know, little pony games to shooting games. A lot of the research shows there's no link to violence. There's no link to anything negative from it. In fact, in areas where gaming is quite popular, crime drops, and mainly because people are inside playing together, having a good time, and not out on the street bored and looking to cause trouble. And are esports driving tech innovation as well? I think so. You know, things like voice over IP is an exciting piece of tech that's enjoyed a lot of test and learn via uh, esports and gaming. You know, there's been a lot of pressure placed on 
enhancing communication between players when they're sitting from their home and they're playing with other people across the world. Same with live streaming. So the technology behind broadcast has revolutionized, largely led by this rising industry of esports and gaming that's demanding this always accessible content. And there's such a rapid flood of tournaments, all broadcasting straight to internet. And then the same with computing. Video gaming and esports demands the highest in uh, computing power and capability. So there has been a lot of investment in the uh, capability of consumer PCs. Esports have already been accepted as a medal competitor in the Asian Games 2020 in South Korea. While the Australian market is overshadowed by the esports buzz of Asia and the US, the industry here is gaining momentum. The first esports high performance center has been launched at the Sydney Cricket Ground and the first Australian leagues are about to kick off. It's competitive, enormously popular and brings in big money. But is that enough to recognize esports as a real sport? About a year ago, Brandon Spratley, the chair of sports management at the US Sports Academy, would have said no, not any longer. The research um, and talking with people in the esports profession have come to the point where I can see why people believe that esports should be considered a sport because it does have some of those same elements as traditional sports, which are teamwork, communication, skill, strategy, practice and preparation. All of those elements can be seen in esports just as in traditional sports. The main thing that is very distinct between traditional and esports is really the physical activity. But if you look at other elements that make a successful team in a traditional sport, You have to have teamwork, you have to have good communication, you have to have good skill and good strategy and preparation behind that as well. And in speaking with people who are involved in the esports profession, all of those elements can be seen in an esports competition. Their hand-eye coordination, their knowledge of the game. And so we have to begin to respect esports as something that could be seen in the sports profession. Can traditional sport afford to ignore esports? I don't think so. I think the National Basketball Association, their commissioner, Adam Silver, is very forward-thinking in implementing esports into the overall league. And he has made it very clear that there are four leagues now. There is the NBA, it's the WNBA for women. You have the G League, which is kind of the development league to get into the NBA. And now you have the NBA 2K League, which has become very popular among those that play that particular game. They're just ahead of the curve. And I do believe more professional sport organizations are going to eventually have to make that move if they want to stay relevant in the sports profession. Could there be a downside, though, of labeling esports sports? We already have big problems with obesity, young people not moving enough, being too sedentary. Could such a label trickle down into the mindset of the youth in a possibly negative way? Oh, there's a very much a possibility that that will happen. But I also believe that esports has received a negative connotation with that. I was actually reading a research article that interviewed 115 elite e-competitors, and they said that they are involved in physical activity at least one hour a day. And so that obviously is above the recommended hours by the the World Health Organization. But I do believe that could happen, especially with childhood obesity 
And back when I was growing up, our parents made us go outside. And I don't think that's the case now. We're so stuck to our screens that we never end up doing an acceptable level of physical activity. And so that expectation is very much a possibility as esports possibly transitions into the sports profession even more and it being labeled as a sport. Now, the Olympic Games, do you think they should transition eventually and be included in the Games? I do. From a branding and marketing perspective, it will increase viewership, specifically in the, the millennial. In that particular arena, I do believe that it will create more popularity among the Olympic Games. You will gain a lot more fans and it'll be good for branding and marketing. Now, obviously, some people are going to be upset and they're going to have a difficult time with esports transitioning into the Olympics and weighing it on the same level. But I do believe esports is well on its way to being included in the Olympics just because of its popularity and just because it will increase viewership specifically among youth and young adult population. Right now, I don't see that happening in the, the immediate future. So how about that bid to include esports in the Olympic Games? Well, International Olympic Committee President Thomas Bach has no problem accepting esports as a sport. But he does have other concerns. We got a pretty good lead, so I'm not really scared about dying. Nope, you're not getting me. Oh, no way! I couldn't see him under the truck! Double kill? Can we get a triple? Nope, not gonna happen. Violence or discrimination, which are, you know, going against the Olympic values. The next question, who would be our partner? Whom would we recognize? Is it the developer? Is it the championship organizer? Is it some teams? Who would be the partner who can then guarantee that our rules are respected? And before we have answered these questions, it makes no sense at all to speak about the Olympic program. First steps towards unity are also crucial to streamline the rather muddled intellectual property rights of the industry. They are even more complex in the digital esports environment. Luke Dale, partner with HWL Epsworth Lawyers. It's probably the key issue with respect to esports and the legalities involved. Basically, the courts agree that computer games are deemed to be audiovisual works or in the context of the Australian Copyright Act, a cinematographic work. And that means that whoever owns those works, and they're typically the games developers, they have certain rights that they can use to control how those works are then used. The key one being a right to limit public performance. So that means the game publisher owns the eSport, owns that game. That's very different to traditional sports. No one owns running. That's right. No one owns a game of cricket. No one owns a game of football, as opposed to esports, where it's basically a particular electronic game being played by a group of people and being watched by a group of people. And that's a situation where the copyright is being publicly performed, and that can be controlled by the copyright owner. And the other complicating thing with esports is the fact that because it's international usually, and you've got players in different places and watching it in different places, there'll be different laws that would apply with respect to what the position is in each country. That sounds like a legal nightmare. It's great for lawyers. Every time something is complicated and there's a lot of uncertainty around how the law applies, that invariably becomes a lawyer's picnic. Is the industry faster developing than legal regulations can keep up? I would say yes, and that's not uncommon, particularly when you talk about copyright. So in Australia, the Copyright Act was enacted in 1968. And if you think about 
what technology was like in the 60s compared to what it's like now, it's obvious that it's not necessarily fit for purpose. The other key issue for esports is the fact that there's a lack of governance and cohesion. So when we talk about sports like basketball or motor racing or cricket, there is usually one international body that's responsible for regulating the game and determining what the rules are. At the moment, that doesn't exist for esports. Well, at the moment, it's a bit of sort of a Wild West situation where there aren't any specific rules, there aren't any standards of governance, so there's no control at the moment. Do you think this lack of a formal governance is a deliberate action to avoid regulation or is it an unintended consequence of an industry booming? I think the second situation in the sense that this didn't exist 10 years ago. I mean, because it's developed so quickly, there hasn't been the opportunity for there to be that cohesion. As it becomes more mainstream, more people watch it, more people go along to live tournaments, there's more money involved. Invariably, there will be, just like other sports, there will be a push for some sort of overarching governance body to be implemented to provide some certainty and control over the sport in general. And that will probably be initially made up of the bigger game developers and they will require their players to be part of it and then encourage other developers to join up as well and effectively then be able to sanction players for not complying or playing in unrecognized sports by saying, well, if you do that, you can't play in our sport. That seems to be how sports tend to control this sort of stuff. Interestingly, in the US, the Supreme Court declared that video games are speech protected by the First Amendment, which I think is fascinating. So what that means is effectively that video games are outside of the control of government because they're deemed to be free speech. So a really interesting area and the fact that you've got these unique issues caught up in it and the fact that there's going to be more and more money pumped into it will make this a really interesting space to watch for the next five to ten years, I think. My name is Mark Assey. I'm the Managing Director of Esports Integrity Coalition Asia-Pacific. Now, there is one area where esports definitely does match traditional sports. Doping and match-fixing. It's common and mostly unregulated. It's everything you'd find in any traditional sport with some nuances. So match-fixing absolutely definitely happens. Substance abuse is also an element. Betting fraud, so you know, cheating to win or cheating to lose, depending on the betting operators and the odds for a particular game. But I think more so the utilization of, of even technology. People can basically install third-party platforms to try and essentially slow down the opponent or, or improve the, the rapidness of their responses. For example, if it's a game that's you know sort of a shooting game, you might get some extra bullets or no need to reload, all those sorts of things which all impact your ability to then compete and give you sort of that competitive edge and advantage against the other players. And even sort of things, for example, with online play to try to sort of slow down some of the bandwidth of some of the competing players that you see elements of that in the industry. Is it this digital nature of esports that make cheating, match-fixing, doping different to what we know in other sports? Because of the digital nature, it makes it harder to monitor. If you have an online tournament and someone's engaging in some drug abuse, how do you test for that when someone's playing from the comfort of their own home? From a match-fixing perspective, you can look at things like if there's betting involved, any irregular odds. You look at sort of that person's you know, particular game style and play versus their historical game play, but it does have challenges. It makes it a lot harder. It's one step removed. What have you identified as the biggest threats to the integrity of esports? That's a, that's a really good question. The biggest threat to esports integrity is the inconsistency of an integrity framework in esports. You can be found 
potentially guilty of a breach in one league, yet still operate in another, in the same platform, in the same game. This lack of cohesion across the industry must make your work almost impossible. It does. It makes it really difficult. It really is largely why Esports Integrity Coalition or ESIC was formed. But it's not insurmountable. It just it requires a lot of effort to try to get cohesion because you, you're getting a lot of parties together. You're bringing players, you're bringing organisations or leagues, you're bringing you know, regulators and even publishers, developers of the game to try to work together and have a consistent framework that they agree on, you know, essentially can all sort of work within. And how much authority or leverage do you have? Can you impose penalties? Absolutely, and we do. We've got a number of decisions against a number of individuals that we've published and essentially restricted some people to engage in some games and events internationally. Being a coalition as such, our jurisdiction is limited to members. What role, if any, do you think that governments of the big e-sporting nations should play in safeguarding the industry? It's an industry that's really a byproduct of the digital age. It's rapidly expanding. It's growing quite rapidly as technology is being introduced. There's a changing dynamic to demands and the way the industry operates. Generally speaking, I'm going to be quite general here because some governments are better than others, but generally speaking, governments are quite slow to react and to act to you know changes in consumer demand, changes in technology. One of the biggest challenges, I think, for government today when it comes to esports is jurisdictional limits. So, for example, you might have someone in Sydney playing someone in Japan. And let's say there's a breach of some regulation. Does Australia have the rights to enforce its laws on the Japanese player? Or does the Japanese player enforce their laws on the Australian player? But nonetheless, I think governments still play a part. How significant, how widespread are these integrity issues now? And do you think the problem will increase with advanced technology? Absolutely. So we deal with lots of it, but it's, it's more so what we don't know than what we do. And that's probably the scary element of it, if you like. I think it is very much a byproduct of the rapid expansion. And I think, you know, a really good example of that is the sad series of events that happened in, in the United States you know, where there was a shooting. And you had EA, uh, Electronic Arts, who was the producer of that game, come out and say, listen, well, we actually didn't officially hold the event. Some of our partners did. And yeah, in, in their good graces, they donated, I think, a million dollars towards some of the victims. If you look at sort of EA's response, to say, well, it wasn't us, it was our partners. I think that's a byproduct of their lack of understanding in you know, sort of that esports industry and arena. They designed the game to be played by individuals via an online platform and you know, potentially compete with each other, but not so much with esports as an industry with front of mind. Esports is more so a byproduct or an afterthought of the game developer. You know, some of these issues are now becoming more prevalent and more live. What can be done in your view? I don't think you can go about dictating to the industry, yeah, here's our codes and just work within that. Thank you very much. Our initiative is to work with players, to work with organisations, to work with leagues and to work with regulators. And we've got all of that on board to try to develop a unified code that works on every level and every spectrum. We're looking at providing template contracts for players, sample terms and conditions, some dispute resolution avenues, but also having some some best practice measures. For example, that incident in Florida, and, and again, hindsight's a, a beautiful thing, but it could have been avoided with some basic security measures that could have been implemented. It's vital. It's a growing industry. I think it's something that needs to happen to ensure its future. A historic moment in esports. Huck pushing in for the win. And the future of esports has only just begun. There's going to be a lot more recognition from government and from big brands and the credibility and the legitimacy of esports is going to rise. There's a lot more media 
involved, the coverage is growing, which will give the fans more content to watch. And that's when we will really see that the fan base that is there, as they get more content brought to them, will engage and that will really prove what's happening and, and show that actually this is something that's quite big and, and ready to take off. There's a lot of talk around 4D esports, for instance, so totally immersive environments. They're already playing with augmented reality and virtual reality technology. We're seeing perhaps the advent of augmented reality and holograms, for instance, being able to project what's happening in one stadium to other stadia around the world simultaneously so you can actually get the live ticketing and revenue out of that and sponsorship out of that in multiple stadiums at the same time. Society is going through a digital revolution. Yeah, esports is a byproduct of that. And if you look at esports as an industry and its growth rate, esports is the future of sporting arena. I think traditional sports will become something more of a, a nice to have. I think the tables will turn in the next decade or so. Not so long ago, gamers used to be called nerds. Now they are stars. Thanks to producer Sinead Lee and sound engineer David White. You've been listening to Future Tense. I'm Karin Sivanovic. Cheers.